sayno.know.org listeners. I just wanted to take a quick second to let you know that we have launched a t-shirt campaign. All of our t-shirts are harm reduction inspired and are available on our website. So please go and check that out. Also, please take that thumb of yours right now and hit that subscribe button. It really, really matters as far as getting recognition goes. And if you have even 20 seconds of time, please rate and review this podcast on whichever platform you're listening because that helps as well. A big thanks to CRISM, the Canadian Research Initiative of Substance Misuse, for providing funding for this podcast to take place. And as always, thanks to DJ Charlie Hustle for providing the intro and outro music. As always, the views, ideas, and everything discussed on this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of CRISM or any of their members. And the same goes for me and all of our guests. So thanks a lot for checking this out. I hope you enjoy this episode. And I'm going to introduce the Say No podcast, um, which is going to be soon. So I'm going to be handing the mic over to Matt Ingruel. So Matt is a 12-year veteran of the Saskatoon Police Service. His work and experience has ranged from extensive undercover operations to patrolling Saskatoon's core neighborhood. And he, along with some others, developed this this deep passion for understanding the root causes of addiction and overall impact on the drug trade. So today, and on many of the episodes of the podcast, Say No, they discuss many topics related to drug education. So I would like to warmly welcome Matt Ingruel to come up and say a little bit more about the podcast. Okay, thanks for, uh, thanks for the introduction. That just shows I probably need to be updating my website a little more often because I've been a cop for 14 years, not 12, but that's okay. Um, I may as well have all the guests come up and grab a seat as I'm, as I'm talking here, so, so come, o- come along with me. I don't think there could be a better way to actually celebrate a day like um, Bell Let's Talk, and I think it does need to be a day of celebration because mental health affects us all. It affects us as individuals, it affects us as parents, it affects us as friends, and it affects us as a community altogether. So I just wanted to thank uh, the organizers for inviting us to do this event. Um, we've, I've never done a live podcast like this before. I've never done a panel interview with, with uh, this many people. Usually our podcasts are just one-on-one, so you have to bear with us. If it, if it sucks, it's the organizer's fault, and if it's awesome, it's because of us. So um, that being said, uh, as a police officer in the city of Saskatoon, I often see the negative impact that mental health and addiction has in our community. So after spending a significant amount of time um, in our drug section and organized crime section, I currently work in the Guns and Gangs unit, I'm often dealing with people that are struggling with these issues. And after I finished my time in the organized crime section, I, I took some time to reflect and I saw that, look, there's more drugs on the street today than there was when I started. There's uh, more dangerous drugs available on the streets than when I started. And I just spent, you know, between five and ten years of my life traveling around the country thinking I was making, making a big impact and clearly I was doing nothing. So how could I then make some change as one individual? And so I got together with, with some people I knew that had some lived experience and said, we need to share your guys' stories and, uh, and, and really educate the community on, on what some of these root issues are so that then our community members can inform their politicians on the kind of decisions and laws and policies they want to see created. So that's, that's kind of the basis around our say no, know.org um, organization. 
And today with me, I, I have a wide array of guests that uh, the university here um, brought us all together. We're kind of a hodgepodge crew. We might start a band after, we'll see. But uh, if, uh, starting here with Becca, if she could just introduce yourself and we'll just go down the line giving quick, quick little introduction. All right. Hi, I'm Becca. Um, I'm a community advocate. I'm a mom first and an advocate second. Um, most recently, I started an initiative to bring a safe consumption site to Saskatoon with astounding results. Um, our community came forth, ranging from organizations to individuals, people with lived experience, to research-based opinions, and we came forward and we hit the streets in like minus 20 weather with inkwell pens and just talked to everybody. Again, all walks of life. And the results were absolutely remarkable, especially with those with lived experience who have um, struggled within um, addiction systems or, um, you know, have experienced barriers. Um, they're very eager to come forward and to um, be proactive in their own care and to say, this is what works and this is what hasn't worked for me. So that's where our initiative came from and now it keeps moving and the momentum keeps building to really make sure that these voices are heard and that's why I'm still here. I'm here based solely on street credit. I'm not really educated, but it's really a pleasure to be here. Street cred's all that matters to me, Becca. Hi, I'm Murray Drew. I'm a professor here at the University of Saskatchewan in animal and poultry science. Uh, my field of research is animal nutrition and uh, married for 35 years, three kids, two grandkids, so that's kind of who I am. And the reason I'm sitting up here is, is that uh, uh, I have bipolar disorder and I have ADHD. And, you know, I hid this for a long time, and I think one of the most liberating things I've ever done is to actually come out of the closet. And I did this primarily because the problem with uh, mental illness here among undergraduate students is it's scary, and the rate of increase is even scarier. 10% um, of our students consider suicide in, in any given year. That's 1,600 people uh, surrounding us. So I thought, you know, I think by sharing my story, hopefully I can show them that having a mental illness is not the end of the world, and that you can uh, be happy and you can be successful. Well, thanks a lot, Marie. Hi, I'm Jaren. I'm a third year psychology student uh, here at University of Saskatchewan. Um, I'm also in, um, a member of the Bangladesh Undergrad Student Federation, and I advocate for um, international mental health, like in terms of um, mental health isn't the same everywhere, and there's a big stigmatization around mental health, especially um, internationally. So um, we try to focus on destigmatizing mental health, so because bringing an awareness to mental health is also super, super important because um, once you, you know, talk about mental health around communities, uh, your community members might think, hey, like, this is something that it's okay to talk about, um, and they might uh, be willing to seek help more because of that reason. Um, and I also focus on how mental health is different across uh, the world as well, um, so different people face mental health in a very different way, and um, not everybody is the same. So we should really take that into account when we you know, um, talk to somebody or see somebody struggling with mental health, because mental health doesn't mean that you're crazy or you're lazy or um, you know, negative things like that, and that's something that 
me and my undergrad student federation were trying to focus on this year. Thanks a lot, Sharon. Hello, uh, I'm Kyle Schwartz. I'm a clinical social worker that uh, works here at the university in the Student Wellness Center. And uh, I've been a clinical social worker for seven years, always working in mental health. Um, and my career has um, started in inpatient psychiatric care, has I've worked a bit in the community um, as well as um, community mental health, and now I'm here at the university. I've always enjoyed being part of, um, whether it's research, uh, speaking events, teaching, learning, that has to focus on uh, stigma busting or education around mental health because of the complexity that is embedded within it. Um, so I feel very fortunate to be here, and um, I hope to do some learning and some sharing as well. So, Thanks, Kyle. Hello. Thank you. <laughs> My name is Alan Kaler. Uh, I'm a mental health advocate, I guess. I have lived it. I have a passion speaking about it. And I'm fortunate to teach part-time the year one mental health and wellness program at SIT, which is pretty well represented here today. And uh, I'm very fortunate. I, yes, I teach, and yet every day I'm taught. Uh, for me, any time that I have an opportunity to put a voice to this in any capacity, the only word I can really think of is redemption. I, I know exactly where I was, I know where I am, and I, I know where I want to go. So thanks so much for coming. Grateful to be here. Thanks a lot, Al. Al's the only one that brought his own cheering section. I said everyone probably should have, but he was the only one that listened. <laughs> oh, fair enough. <laughs> That's right. Well, thanks everybody for, for, uh, for coming on uh, this episode of the Say No KNOW.org podcast. And uh, thanks to the university for hosting it. As you all heard, there's, there's quite a range of, uh, of experience. But like I said, it, whether you're a professional in the field or just a community member here in Saskatoon, there's no doubt that you too have some form of lived experience because um, nobody's life right now goes without, without being uh, impacted by mental health or an addiction, or both. Um, for myself, every day I'm rolling around in my, in my uh, gang unit vehicle and uh, dealing with the gang members on our street. My partner definitely has ADHD, and, uh, and every once in a while I have to deal with him accidentally leaving the notebook on the roof of our car. But there's so many positive aspects to having ADHD, especially in our line of work, that I wanted to ask Murray, could you, could you Give us some examples or of some, some strengths and some real um, unique characteristics that you have thanks to the ADHD that you live with. You know, I think most people think of ADHD as, yeah, leaving something on the roof of your car or, you know, forgetting your keys. Everybody forgets that there's one thing about ADHD they mostly don't know, and that's the ability to hyper-focus. Okay, so if I want to do something and I'm interested in it, I can do it, and I can do it very well, and after about 12 hours, I'll look up and wonder where it went. Um, so, you know, being scattered is only part of the problem. Um, it is a huge advantage to have that uh, aspect of it. Yeah, no doubt. And as a professional living with bipolar, um, could you kind of give us some insight as to, you know, what, is, what does it look like? Is there any adaptations that you've had to make um, you know, what is, what's been the response to your colleagues and your students when they find out that, that you have, are living with bipolar? Well, first, I didn't know I was living with bipolar until 2010 when I finally got a diagnosis. So I always thought that the, uh, everybody else was really screwed up and that I was okay. 
Uh, once I was diagnosed, I, uh, I kind of sorted that out and began to see maybe I was doing some strange things. Um, you know, I, th I think the thing I've really had to learn is, is that if I want to keep this under control, uh, I not only have to take the drugs that I'm given, I also have to do other things that keep me healthy. Things uh, that I kind of have to force myself to do, and in the past I've, uh, you know, I've not done them. Uh, and so, for instance, uh, recently I just spent two years off work, uh, ended up in the Dubai, Dubai Center here, uh, and that's because, you know, the stress got to me and I was not doing the stuff I need to do. So, you know, what I've had to do to figure it out is to do all those healthy things that, you know, we all know about, but we rarely do. I exercise, I eat right, I do all of the things, and, uh, you know, I think that's what's made the difference for me. Right. Kyle, as a professional in this space, is that something that, uh, is that something that you're, you're constantly, you know, telling your clients or the people you're working with about, you know, self-care? Yeah, you know, actually, I really liked the question that you asked around ADHD, which was, what are the advantages? And there's a really good book out there uh, regarding ADHD, um, and it, it's, I think it's called The ADHD Advantage. And it, one of the great things about the book is they coin uh, people who experience ADHD as the comeback kids, and because these are individuals who have gone through life and had to adapt constantly. And because of the adaptations that they've gone through throughout their life, coming to university has actually equipped them really well to respond to the ever-flowing change that they have to respond, you know, a, a midnight paper that they have to finish quickly or um, some feedback maybe that they receive. Um, and, and furthermore, um, the, the conversation around uh, self-care is so important. And, it, and it's, it seems like one of those things that we just, uh, in society, throw around as kind of a buzzword, but it is something that is so incredibly important and almost can be thought of as like as a medicine. But it's something that has to be taught and something that has to be learned. And it's exactly what um, we just heard, that there was some things that had to happen along the way in order to learn what worked. Because my self-care and your self-care is going to be very different. I'm not a good painter. I'm not a good drawer. <laughs> right. Thanks. Thanks for sharing that, Kyle. Um, when it comes to uh, my experience on the street, one thing that I always found uh, unique as I've moved my career through, I started working in kind of the higher, highest level that I guess we're at least we're at least uh, funded to target as far as the drug trade goes. And now I kind of work at the bottom level with our, with our street gangs here. And the bottom level is far more violent than the organized crime world that I used to work in. And when I was trying to do some research to find out why is it that we would have two individuals, two youths here in Saskatoon that were raised a lot of times maybe by their grandma. They're spending Christmas times together. They're 14, 15 years old, but they spent all of childhood together. Why is it that the police are getting a call that one of them stabbed the other? And it's very confusing because you think that these violent crimes that they're committing on each other, you think that bloodlines would run thicker than anything else. And the sad thing is it's not the case. And the only explanation I had for this um, anomaly that I was seeing is with what Gordon Neufeld once said in one of his books called, um, I think it's called Hold On To Your Kids. And he talks about um, when peers replace your parents. And when peers replace your parents, what's lost is identity. And your own individual identity becomes that of the groups. And that is no doubt what's happened with the street gangs that we have here in Saskatoon, whereas the, they were, they're not being raised by their parents, they're being raised by their peers, 
and then their individual identity becomes out of the gangs. So whether they're a member of the terror squad, the Indian posse, a hustle crew, any of these street gangs that we have here in Saskatoon, even though these, a lot of these siblings grew up and are in rival gangs, that, doesn't, that, that line isn't as thick as it is for the gang itself, which is really interesting. So speaking about um, individual identity and the importance behind that, I was wondering if, Jaron, if you could explain what, it's, what is it like or how is it um, to come to a, to a brand new country and be able to kind of keep that identity going? Um, well, definitely um, coming, uh, like I wasn't, I'm not an international student, but I do work with a lot of international students. Um, and coming from a, a country that's completely different than this one with different social norms, um, and there's different definitions of what normal is. So um, something that we might do in our country might not seem like normal here, right? And so because of these things, uh, you know, uh, you're made fun of or... Um, people ostracize you because like you know you're not seen as normal but normal the definition of normal is like very different um, especially like across the world um, one thing that we kind of stress about is something that I wanted to um, go on about uh, that you kind of said is I think that self-care is super super important um, but uh, one thing that we uh, kind of noticed is that uh, Sorry, I'm, I don't really speak in panels, so I get a little nervous. <laughs> None um, of us do. It's all good. Um, that depression and mental health can be affected by so many different things. It could be genetic. It can be your um, external factors that can uh, affect your mental health. So if you see somebody that that is like doing very well, quote unquote doing very well, and they're they have great marks, um, they have a great job, but you know, they're, they're talking to you like, hey, you know, like I'm not doing very great these days. Um, and sometimes people might say, well, you have everything going for you. Why would you, why are you complaining? Um, right. You know, like there's so many things that affect a person's mental health and that's just something that I want to touch on like when you guys were talking about self-care and stuff like that. So a person, we don't know what's going on inside a person's head and there's like so many factors that um, contribute to mental health that, you know, like just saying, hey, like you don't deserve to be unhealthy or things like that is can be very damaging. Um, also, um, in terms of identity, uh, I, the, the place that I come from, I know that people, there's so much com competition uh, between people in order to get jobs, in order um, to get good grades, that kids over there focus a lot and their parents tell them to focus a lot on getting really, really good marks. So when they come here, they're expected to get really, really good marks. I mean, they will study for hours and hours and hours. It's crazy how, how competitive it is. So they're focusing on one type of struggle, but the whole mental health thing isn't really, it's something that's very new. Um, and a lot of people don't really recognize mental health. So if, um, like for example, if I tell somebody that, hey, I'm feeling very down, they'll be like, oh, get over it, you know? Um, let's uh, get over it and go study, like you're not studying hard enough. Or um, if I'm like feeling depressed and I don't feel like doing something that day, um, they'll be like, hey, like why are you so unmotivated? Like you have to get the grades, you know? And when students from uh, internationally, they come here, they feel that same pressure to to get good grades and not just that, to make their parents proud because our parents, uh, I mean, it's kind of weird to say it in this way, like our parents are our biggest support 
I mean, they're the ones that love us the most, but they're also the source of our biggest pressure. So, um, I mean, and there's a lot of people that say like, oh, if your parents are like, you know, you're, you're 18, you can do whatever you want, and your parents, um, your parents can't really control you. Well, that doesn't really fly with, with like our culture because we are raised so differently and we're raised in an environment where um, like family is almost like everything. Right. Uh, and um, saying things like, and, and our family like is our support, not just our financial support, but our family is our support. So we can't just like be like, hey, I'm 18 now, I can do whatever I want. Because with that comes a lot of like stress on your community. Their community will say, hey, like what a bad kid. They're um, their ladies let go of their parents and things like that. So um, I guess mental health is faced, like I, like I want to say, mental health is faced really differently among different people. And there's not always like one solution um, to targeting mental health. Well, so what can be done from a, from a student um, population perspective? What can students themselves do to ensure that they are um, looking out for the mental well-being of their counterparts, whether they're international students or, or not? Mm -hmm. um, I think words are a very, very important thing. Um, <laughs> this is kind of funny where uh, our parents will, will, for example, if their uh, son or daughter gets into medical school or whatever, they'll be like, hey, guess what? My son or daughter got into medical school. Um, but it's rarely that they'll go up to the child and be like, hey, you know what? I'm doing, I know that you're struggling and you're doing really, really well, and I'm very, very proud of you. And that comes from, like, you know, making the child tough, you know, giving them that much. I mean, our parents provide us everything. They love us, but the whole telling us that they love us thing is right. a little more, um, they don't really do that because they want to bring us up in, like, because the world is tough, and they want to bring us up in this, like, really tough world and, and giving us that, like, you know, that coup or, like, that baby talk or whatever, right. they, as they think, um, might make us soft. Um, so that that something that the words are something that's super important, I think, and also um, realizing that mental health is something that it's okay to talk about. And if someone talks right. to you about mental health, about like they're not they're depressed or this, don't think that suddenly they're an abnormal person. Um, they're not you know f able to function in society or and, and things like that. And another thing that is super common amongst international students is uh, loneliness and isolation. So uh, we come from a place where um, we're surrounded by a lot of people. So uh, not just that, like students mo mostly have to focus on studying. So typically they won't get like a part-time job or something like that. And you're surrounded by many friends, you're surrounded by lots of family, but once you come here, you're kind of like in an unknown place, you're kind of alone and you don't, really have not it's hard, tough to make friends right. because here everyone is kind of in their own little hustle where you you have to work and you have to get good grades and you have to volunteer and you have to do all of these things where, where you don't get enough time to socialize and because of these reasons i mean making friends and even people from here making friends Friends can be a really difficult thing, and finding people to just connect to can be so a those, really that, thing. So that personal connection obviously is, is even more important for our international students. Yes. Um, you, you, brought, you mentioned suicide there, uh, Jaron, and 
like right now, just so people are aware, um, one in five Canadians will experience a mental health issue this year. But by the time that we're 40 years of age, 50% of our population has had what could be diagnosed as either a mental health condition or a mental health illness. So by the time we're 40, half of our population has dealt with this personally. Um, and the sad result of mental health issues that aren't taken care of, of course, is suicide. And right now, even though it's 50% male or female are the, are the ones that are going to be diagnosed with a mental health issue or at least, or at least uh, deal with it at some point in their lives, men are disproportionately um, represented in the suicide statistics. So um, a male is four times more likely to die by suicide than that of the female counterparts. And so I wanted to ask uh, Kyle, um, what, what is the deal there? Is there, is, is the Gillette commercial about uh, toxic masculinity playing a factor or, or what's, what's going on? You know, uh, in thinking about this question, one concept that I want to bring in is the concept of individualism, which is this old kind of way of thinking that, that the person is the problem. And we just kind of heard, you eloquently said, people will offer these platitudes around like, just get over it. Like, people experience this. It's, it's very dismissing. It's very minimizing. It's, al it's also very isolating. And so when we think about actually there's a, there's a, a line of therapy called narrative therapy, and narrative therapy is really based in, in individualism where we have to learn how to separate. How do we separate the, what the problem is from the person. The problem is suicide, or the problem is depression. The, the person is not actually the, the issue. And, but our society does uh, kind of a poor job in emphasizing that. And when you throw in something like toxic masculinity, and you think about um, the different ways in which our society is structured to teach not, o not only men, but, but women and, and girls and boys how to actually talk about their feelings, we don't really do that. We spend more time learning how to sign up for swimming lessons because swimming lessons is a activity that's fun, but it's also a life-saving skill. But so is learning how to manage our emotions. And I don't say that lightly. We just heard like a statistic from Matt. And according, according to the World Health Organization, 800,000 people die by suicide. And the specific population of fifth, the ages of 15 to 29, that is the second leading cause of death. Like that's an epidemic. And there's lots of research and, and people out there that are talking about, because this is an epidemic, we need to treat it as that. And we need to be as aggressive in how we respond and we promote um, strategies or getting connected as we would with smoking or with other kind of ailments. The second thing too is we would never expect if someone presented to the ER with a broken leg to say, you know what, it's gonna get better if you just go home and just think differently. It will heal, the bone will totally realign, don't worry about it. <laughs> we would never do that. But there's somewhere along the line that we've kind of developed this line of thinking that people should just know what to do. You should just know how to take care of your mental health. But you know, at the ages of 15 to, to 29, that's actually the, the highest prevalence of psychiatric disorders to come out. And if there's been no coaching along the way, and, and all of a sudden you're now going through a number of changes in your life, how do you respond and how do you manage that? That's a really tall order, especially if you're coming to university. So, I mean, I think mental health is really complicated. 
And the answer I just gave, I think, is complicated yeah. because there's so many underlying factors. There's so many root systems that have to be examined and challenged. Right. Murray, where did you, Kyle just mentioned about like, you know, lear learning how to cope or learning strategies. How, do, how were you able to learn so that, you know, you're sitting in this panel today, you're, you're teaching a lecture hall full of students, you're going on your day-to-day -day life. Where did these skills come from? Um, first of all, until I was 57 and was diagnosed, I don't think they came from anywhere. As I said, I mean, I was convinced that I was great and that everybody else, well, I wasn't so sure about. So, <laughs> you know, I, I guess, you know, having ADHD and being able to hyper-focus, well, I have the perfect job for that. I mean, my job is all about hyper-focusing. I get rewarded for it. Uh, ask my wife what it's like to live with me at home. Um, you know, I would go through periods of a couple years where I was depressed. And most people think that depression is kind of like, oh, I'm sad. In my case, it kind of came out as irritability and like I was really quick to get angry. And uh, people don't think of that as being depressed, but um, often, you know, that's what it is, particularly in men. Right. So how did I learn? Um, I guess once I got the diagnosis, I read everything I could about my, uh, my disease. Um, you know, I, I kind of took to heart the suggestions that you're given in terms of, you know, all the great things. And, uh, you know, sometimes I did them, sometimes I didn't. Uh, but, you know, I think the last time being off for two years, uh, standing on the university bridge wondering, you know, if I jump over, is it enough, will it kill me or not? Um, I walked to uh, the hospital, went to the Dubai Center, and I guess there I made the decision I don't want to die. And so all of those things that we know what to do, I, I started doing them and I won't ever stop. Wow. So it's, it's fair to say that, uh, you know, while you were struggling with your mental health issue, you were, you were working, you're a working professional. Um, you, had some, you had some privilege in your life. Becca, you're on the front lines. Um, I know on the fight, at least in Saskatoon, um, for, you know, community, the community addiction. Addiction often goes hand in hand with mental health. Um, what's your experience with people who maybe don't have the resources that, that possibly Murray, Murray had when he was struggling? I think I am that person, or at least I was for a period of time. Um, my experience with addiction is very complex, and it's rooted um, with loving somebody who has a complex addiction. Um, in my youth, I, I, spent time, I spent time in my mom's vehicle waiting for her to get down out of the Barry Hotel. I also spent my time in night classes here um, with her in her night classes for sociology. Um, <laughs> sorry, what was the question? No, this is, I mean, you're, you're sharing it. I mean, this, I, was, I was wondering, I mean, your, your mom may not have had the, the opportunity and the privilege that, that Murray had when he, when he went through his rough, rough patch. And I think you sharing about your mom maybe not having that privilege either, and what's the difference and what it was like? Um, again, and why, why I share my story with such transparency and even like with, with my own addictions is to relieve that stigma. Even leading up to the point of her death um, within the systems, we were never approached, um, at least not as a health issue or a mental health, a mental health issue even. It, it, it slipped under wraps and ultimately she lost her life because of that. Um, and in my personal experience through like, you know, 10 different interactions with, with police um, and, and, and 
countless interactions within the health, health region, nobody approached me. And I was in between the ages of 11 till 18, and nobody reached out to me. Nobody reached out to her either. Um, and again, when we, I, I like to think of what it would look like if we approached mental health and addictions as a disease. So when my mom was diagnosed with um, diabetes, an, an educator came to our home and laid out all of the bits of information and provided us counseling. What does it look like for you to live a better life and to be healthy? It wasn't the same approach when she was diagnosed with an addiction. And ultimately it petered off until it was too late. So that's where my advocacy stems from. This happened multiple years ago. Services have improved since then. Um, but what I am seeing, especially in my street work, um, and what continues to expire, inspire me are the youth who are continually affected and who are still not receiving those same types of service, whether right. they are addicted to drugs or whether they are affected. Yeah. Right. So even if the services do exist, it's hard to get get them in, in place um, with people that are coming out of certain populations or, or struggling exactly. with lack of resources. And myself and with my peers, um, the only form of outreach that really actually reached us was with the police and with the health region. Right. Um, but nothing was furthermore provided. So that's kind of where my advocacy stems from. Yeah, the, I, think, I think there's no point, and um, I advocate it at, at work here in Saskatoon, and, and I. I'm continually a thorn, I think, in some of my supervisor's mind because I think police can be that point of contact because of the amount of people we're dealing with to help um, provide services, and uh, or referral to services, I should say, not provide them. And we're definitely not doing that as much as we should be. We're, we're definitely getting better. We have a mental health team uh, packed, they're called, and it's a social worker, police officer partnered up, and they deal with most of the mental health crisis we deal with. But that does leave us, of course, to deal with the people that are really struggling. So, I mean, just a few weeks ago, my partner and I had to taser somebody, unfortunately, that was going through a psychosis. It was meth-induced, but again, who's to say, chicken or the egg, what started first? Um, but in this case, he was so violent to himself and to us that the safest thing for him was to be tasered and then taken somewhere for, for help. Um, Alan, uh, recently, suicide is, as, uh, has impacted my life closer than I closer than I ever expected it to um, dealing with mental health is exhausting it really is uh, whether you're you have it yourself whether you're trying to love someone with mental health issues um, you're a person who motivates uh, what 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 advice do you have what can you say about the topic uh, um, I think that when I, when I worked as an addictions counselor, for example, I gave everything at my work and I would come home with nothing. And I think that emotions are energy and a lot of us are very susceptible to energy. And I, I would almost envision it when some of my clients would speak that I'm covered in like a black tar. And I didn't have the tools to take care of my own well-being. And I value being a father and I value being a good husband but there was a catalyst or a turning point where, where I remember that I had to make a decision how much energy and time I'm willing to put into work and how much time and energy I'm going to give to my family. And I had to really look at a lot of different tools that were available and then practice them. And what works for me, kind of what you alluded to, Kyle, will not work for, for someone else. It's, a, it's an intense field. It's a very rewarding field. Um, yeah, ADHD or ADD has been a topic, and I, I mean, I struggle with it because I'm, I'm like you, Becca. I have no idea what you asked me. 
I have no clue. You're doing it. But there's You're a chance, and, and for my students, I mean, this, this is the reality. This is what happens. So there's a chance that I answered your question, but oh, there sure might even did. be more. Oh, yeah. Just keep going, man. <laughs> yeah. You're, Look, Al, you're uh, you're you're a dynamic speaker. Okay, uh -huh. you've got YouTube videos <laughs> out there. You've written books that are available for purchase over here, just so everybody knows. Uh, you've got personal experience. Yeah. Would Would you mind sharing some of your stories with with the audience here? Uh, so, I guess for me, the world was always my stage, and what people saw on the outside was so different than what was taking place on the inside. Because I was fortunate to, you know, be athlete of the year, captain of sports teams national scholarship recipient, and I knew how to act. I could wear the mask. My downfall was that I had no idea how to talk about my pain, and my mental health issues really started to surface when I was in grade 11. And I can look back and I would say all the signs are there, but even the educators, I know that they cared, but they didn't know what to do with someone like me. And one of the things that I'm really passionate about is just, I guess, educating people on how to approach people who are in pain. And I'm gonna go off tangent here for a second. I'll come back to, if I remember what your question was. But it's, you know, elders always remind us that there's a reason that we have two ears and one mouth. And I have really tried to be an active listener. Listening is work. But I think that even for myself, after I was done with the lived experience of mental illness and addictions, I, I understood that people just want to be seen and they want to be heard. My approach initially was this fixing, let's try to fix, and I have no business and no right to fix. And I think when I reflect back, the short and sweet is that I led a life of complete self-destruction. I, I feared, I feared life. I, I never feared death. I had no idea how to live. And I, you know, I'm listening to these themes about self-care and taking care of self, but I can think back for all those years when I was struggling with, with mental illness and addictions, and I'm pumped on, I, think I, had, I had a combination of 13 prescription pills in six years. That's a lot of pills, plus I'm an alcoholic. Self-care, I didn't, I didn't give a rat's ass about self-care. I mean, and that's a completely different issue because how do you help someone who doesn't want to be helped and I, I would attend something like this and ah you know it would have fallen on deaf ears and I had to kind of get to that point of learning that life is something that can be enjoyable but the difference is I had to remove the victim mentality because I think I played that really well and I remember sitting across from an, an elder who I respect and I was bitching about something, and he says, you know what, Al, you are not the only person who has struggled with addictions, you're not the only person who struggled with mental illness, and you're not the only person who's been sexually abused. And if you want something different, go get it, because this world owes you nothing. Nah, it's pretty mad. <laughs> but that kind of speaks to the shift of mentality, because I was that victim, Right. And, and then you, you open your eyes, and I, I have access to over 20 mental health professionals, and I continuously seek out the resources, and some things work and some things don't. But right. I, I think the shift is that I have started to uh, really be active and diligent in my own wellness. Right. Thank you. Yeah. Well, you definitely, I don't even remember what the question was awesome. that I asked you, but that was a great answer. And we're not alone. <laughs> you must have hit it. I'm sure this, you did. Yeah. Um, so we, we talked about um, 
I think it's important to talk about harm reduction in this world of uh, mental health and addictions uh, discussion we're having. Um, you talked about trying to help somebody who necessarily doesn't want to be helped, maybe you were that person, um, or trying to fix something um, where you have no right fixing it. Uh, I think that's where the, the harm reduction um, talk as a community comes in and, and definitely has a role. Okay, so we're dealing with a community that, like Al said, mental health and addiction is often rooted in, in trauma, abuse, some form of neglect. Uh, I've done 17 episodes of my podcast so far. I think yesterday's that we released was maybe the third or fourth person that had lived experience, was a, like a, a former drug user. Um, and all four of them, these are not, a theme, these are random people that I've met throughout my life that I've asked to come on. I didn't know their background, didn't know their story. And so far, all four of them have disclosed um, a childhood trauma or abuse, a severe abuse. So this is a theme that we need to understand when we're out there working. And I don't think there's any better person than Becca to talk about harm reduction in our community, about um, what resources and services we currently have to help reduce the harm of mental health and addiction, and also um, where we need to go as a community and what we should be advocating for. Well, you, we were talking about, um, about childhood traumas. Um, in my experience in, in street work, again, we've been out in like minus 20 temperatures talking to all walks of life. Some repeated terms that I've heard that are very relevant to me are um, 60 scoop residential schools. And my mom is a 60 scoop fatality who raised a survivor. And I want to make that very clear. Um, and it's, it's, it's not just getting to the root of these, pro um, these problems and saying... Um, um, I, th I think that understanding is the, is the biggest obstacle to reconciliation because you view people who, um, who have complex needs, who are using, um, who are using drugs as um, you know, criminals or as some kind of harmful person. And, and, and in my experience, I, I, I see people shy away from me. People who are visibly like, under the influence, they shy away almost like they're expected that like, like I'm going to reach out to you and hurt you. Do you know what I mean? Right. Um, and that's, that's been not only hard, but like really affirming to just be like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm here for you and I'm on your side. I want to meet you where you're at, whether that means, you know, 24-7 needle exchange or getting you into treatment yesterday. Um, and yeah, I'm not a fixer. I'm not the one who's going to fix these problems. But, I, but with lived experience, I'm probably in the best position to reach out and understand. Because I've seen, you know, me and my peers have all lost somebody to, due to drugs. Um, whether it be, you know, our, our peers or our parents, et cetera, like that. Right. But I think peer-led peer outreach, um, we need more of definitely in Saskatoon. I would say we have some, and we, and we definitely need more. Because, like you said, there's no better person to offer that lending hand than somebody when they make that eye-to-eye -eye connection to say, well, this person knows Absolutely. what I'm going through. It, it's through that lived experience that I have seen people open up. Um, it was two weeks ago on 20th and P. Um, I, I stopped a, a group of like three 13-year-olds and I told them, I was like, you know, I'm out here because I lost my mom because of down. And one said, I lost my dad to meth. And the other said, I lost my dad to murder. And these are 13-year-old kids. They're on their way to go to, um, they were on their way to a hockey group at White Buffalo, which is remarkable. And I think back to the times when I was that young or and I, I had just lost my mom. I was going to Skyap and I was, um, I was painting my heart out. Um, I, 
I wasn't really addressing um, my mental health needs or my PTSD, but I was actively trying to be creative, and that's what helps me overcome um, the obstacles with my mental health and helps me to seek more. Um, yeah. Yeah, great. Um, recently uh, on a previous podcast episode, we had uh, Anne Livingston. I don't know if anyone knows who Anne Livingston is, but she was fundamental in getting Canada's first safe injection site insight up and running in downtown Vancouver. She's a massive advocate um, and still working on the streets in the community uh, today. When I was talking with Anne on the podcast, she said, um, oftentimes we talk about mental health and addiction, and we don't we don't over-cross over the two. And we need to consider them one and the same. Addiction oftentimes is a result of mental health or it's a result of something different, childhood abuse, trauma, like we talked about. Um, and it just reminded me of a story. I used to have this, um, this police informant and he was a high-level drug trafficker. This guy was responsible for bringing a lot of meth into Saskatoon when meth was very expensive. Now it's very cheap. And he would... Get, he got in the car and he was a meth user as well. And one time he got in the car with my partner and I and he just started talking. And I didn't know if he was talking about what happened today, what happened yesterday, 100 years ago, if he, this is something he watched in a movie. It was just all over the map, two left, right, sideways. We didn't know what's going on and I finally just stopped him and I said, look man, I don't understand what you're saying. My partner doesn't understand what you're saying. Like maybe this relationship together is not going to work. And, and uh, he ended up getting out of the car and he called me up again the next day and he said, you know, give me another shot. You know, so I, we brought him in, we met, we met with him and he was all business. And he was just like, told us this is what's going on. This is the price. This is who's bringing it in. This is what's happening. It was just like, bang, 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 boom, done. Any, any questions? And we, my partner and I were like, holy shit, like this is a completely different person than we met with yesterday. Like, what's going on? And so I asked him and he says, well, it's because I just took a hit of meth before I got in your car. And so what did that tell me? That told me that this person is struggling with some mental health issues and he's self-medicating with methamphetamine and it's working. It's working, like he can balance his life. And so I said, wow, like you found something that actually works for you. And it happens to be an illicit substance, crystal meth. And, and he says, yes, but the problem is because it's meth, I'm going to run around, I'm going to start, I'm going to get out of your car, smoke so much that I run around with my shirt off barking like a dog. I said, well, yes, that is a problem. Um, maybe you should consider some different prescription medication or something to medicate yourself with. Fast forward now 10 years later, and he's now a professional. We don't disclose his real identity, but he's a professional. And, uh, and he's completely recontributed back to the community. You would never think that that was one and the same person. And that's because he got his mental health taken care of. Um, so that being said, I'll, I'll open up to the panel if you guys have anything else that we didn't address that you would like to get across. And while we're doing that, um, we've got a microphone here to ask questions. So we have about 15 minutes left. Um, anyone's welcome to come up, ask us any questions uh, that you feel appropriate. Yeah, it's, um, you know, a couple times people have said privilege, and yeah, I'm absolutely privileged. No matter what happens, I got a nice warm bed to go home to. I've got people who care about me. Um, but I, I think I also want to, um, you know, talk about what you said. It's, uh, you know, people can be in, they look successful, they've got everything, and they can still have a mental illness, they can still have drug addiction. So it strikes everybody. It's not just people living on the street, it's everybody. You'd think, professors, what a great job, right? Uh, we get paid uh, lots of money, we get to do exactly what we wanted to do. The problem
problem is that uh, faculty have about four times the rate of depression and anxiety as anybody else, and uh, so we're a very, very mentally ill group. Uh, and part of the reason is is because we won't talk about it. And that reason is is because then we won't get uh, tenure and promotion. So this is, uh, this is the problem. I think right. it's uh, people stigmatize themselves. They won't talk about it. And I think uh, that's what we need to do is we need to get this all out of the closet and shine a light on it. Yep, I agree 100%. I was actually, I remember when we were preparing for this uh, panel and, and Kyle brought up something I didn't realize. And in your experience, you were saying that a lot of times it's high achievers that are the ones that are succumbing to their suicide, not necessarily the people that you know we would expect that have been struggling their whole life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's you know uh, there's like a, a degree of, of research out there that tries to give us some information around social determinants of health, what might be influencing suicide, and you know over the course of you know the last three years we've saw like a shift in that. And like I'm, I'm not talking in the, I haven't saw any specific research, but when you look at some of the things that have happened in the community, um, it, it's it's like lots of people who maybe are not connected or are high achievers or they're they're working really really hard and uh, you think about kind of sustainability how long can someone continue to kind of go at that rate uh, with no supports continue to suppress emotion until you feel completely depleted and I think that was one of the, the things the, the themes that I heard from you too I think all of us can kind of just kind of like soldier up and kind of move forward but you know that's a long road to go I think you were gonna say something just uh, to go off of like uh, what you were saying and then what we were you were saying about uh, suicide rates, um, obviously the suicide rates among men is very, very high. And I mean like, I'm not a researcher, but something that I've noticed and I've experienced um, in my life, especially like around cultures, is that um, men and women experience mental health in, in sort of different ways in, in some aspect where uh, obviously, like men are told that they have to be tough, and they're not allowed to talk about their feelings or their emotions. And if they do, um, they're kind of—it's kind of like feminine. So, like, wh so what? So what if it's feminine, right? I mean, you're not giving them an opportunity to talk about some of the stuff that they're struggling with, but pe they are struggling with things, right? Um, and whereas, like, women are are um, taught to be more like sacrificing and tolerance so if you are um, if you are a woman then and you talk about your mental health or something they'll be like oh well you're not a good mother or you're not a good daughter or you're not a good you know because you're supposed to be to focusing on other people and not on yourself right um, so I think in that way like there's um, that's one of the problems that that I think um, well, I'm gonna sound like a politician here you know, the, uh, children are 100% of our future, but children are always watching us. And I think that sometimes as adults, we do a great job of talking and we suck at acting or, you know, walking the talk. And I, I mean, I caught myself doing this not too long ago too with our, our oldest son. I, I just had a, just a rough day and I came home from work and my son, you know, said, how's your day? What do I say? Good. Nothing on my body is saying that today was a good day. And I thought to myself, why the hell would my own kid be able to actually tell me how he's doing if I can't even go there? And I think that sometimes we just have to allow ourselves to be vulnerable so that it gives others permission to, to do the same. That's a great point. Really good point.
Yeah, you know, you just reminded me, I, I, uh, I, I was babysitting uh, my nephew and he started to cry. And I said to him, there, there's no reason to cry. And my partner was like, <gasps> <laughs> he's a travel agent. But uh, he, he, uh, he said to me, Kyle. And I, I, do you want to try that again? And I was like, yes, I do want to try it again. <laughs> so then, of course, we have this conversation around like, no, you're allowed, you're, you know, that's valid, that's important. And, and looking back, the reason I was so quick to say, it's, there's no reason to cry, is uh, because it was going to be okay. I knew it was going to be okay because I was going to give him all the five cent candies he wanted so that he would be happy. Um, but he didn't know that. But I, I kind of quickly rushed in there to then kind of confuse him. So I had to really do that work to like validate and say, no, you're allowed to feel this way. You know, this is what we're going to do with this emotion. That's okay. And uh, and and plus, my partner was was way happier <laughs> that I, <laughs> I, I redid that. So yeah, you, you made me think of that. We we do have to do that teaching. We have I, to do that coaching. I'm I'm married to a social worker, and all of her family are social workers, really well known in in the Saskatoon community. And I can tell you from your partner's perspective as a travel agent, it would have felt really good for him to be able to put a social worker in their place and out social work them in the moment. Yeah, no, he called my mom. <laughs> <laughs> um, we'll, we'll turn it over to, uh, to you guys here. Um, let's get some questions going. We need at least one question. Yes, there's a microphone right behind you. Just because it's recorded, all questions will we'll have to go through the mic, so either pass it around or step up. Yeah, yeah. sure. Thank you. Uh, thanks for your good thoughts on this matter. My question was about, by any means, if talking about suicide make people suicidal. Is that true or not? To me, it's not right. But I heard it during the past months a lot. We had a case in our department, and they, they encouraged us to hide it and not to talk about it. And if we want to talk about it, we have to see a therapist and we cannot talk about it in our community. And the reason was, it, it was not something that they tell us straight forward, but that was what I got from it. So I was wondering, what do you think about it? Like, I was seeing that event that happened, that thing that happened as a sign that how mental health is problematic over there and we have to talk about it. But it was like something that happened and the next day, nothing. So because they think that it, it makes people suicidal. Well, I'll, I'll, field this, I'll field the first part, um, and then maybe you guys have some better answers. I just went through some personal experience with what you're referring to, and uh, what, what ends up happening, especially with youth, is as soon as one youth does commit suicide, it makes other youth that are already at risk to commit suicide, it makes it real and fresh in their mind that it's actually an attainable goal that they can then follow out. And so school response and a community response around a youth suicide is really important because it's not that, it's not that necessarily that talking about suicide um, is gonna stimulate more suicide, but when there's a specific incident that happens, all those youth that are already at risk are slightly higher and more likely to commit suicide after seeing it real. That's, that's from my own personal experience recently. And uh, if there's anybody else here that has another answer, by all means. Yeah, that, that's a great question. And uh, one of the, the things that, in terms of research, um, is that talking about suicide doesn't lead a person 
to, to commit suicide. Actually, it, there's a number of things that go into creating that blizzard. Um, and this is, this is actually, your question is beautiful because it highlights how individualism works uh, and it runs interference. When we look and say, uh, uh, that's something we don't, we don't talk about, that's something that you need to kind of go off and, and talk privately, you can't help but think about the shame and guilt that might be attached to that. And then, geez, if someone else is already thinking this, um, should I really go and seek help? And so, you know, days like this are so important because we need to normalize, we need to validate, and we need to have a conversation about it. So I would encourage people when they are having these thoughts to express them and get connected. I think the get, getting connected part is important too because even if we don't want people to be floundering or for people to kind of think, is it bad enough that I can go get services? If, you, if you're having a thought of suicide, if you're, if you're experiencing sadness, if you're experiencing anxiety, that's all relevant. That is all you need to get connected. And so I think that's a really good question that you, you asked. I don't know, Thank does you. other people, would you add things we, or? We probably have time for one or two more questions. Yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> um, I can't remember your name, the young lady in the middle. Jaren. Um, where are you from? Sorry, I missed that part. I'm from Bangladesh. Okay, I was just wondering because um, I was raised um, primarily off of Western traditions when it comes to dealing with mental health and anxiety and addictions and all that type of stuff. I was born through, or I was raised that way through Western teachings. I've had the chance to go to SIIT, which is a primarily Indigenous school, and got to witness some of the traditional cultural teachings from them. I'm just wondering, are addictions and mental health issues as prevalent where you're from? And if you do, what are some of the traditional teachings that you use to deal with them, to help with them? Great question. Um, um, in terms of that, I think um, mental health, in terms of like where I come from, is fairly a new thing. So. Um, uh, there's a lot of stigmatization around it, so that's why that's something that we really, really wanted to focus on as, um, you know, as an undergraduate group is that stigmatization around mental health because, like I said, it's a very, very new thing. And um, just going off on what you said, um, a lot of like solutions or like um, t things about mental health are very like, I guess you can say westernized. Um, so you, you, and you see it in kind of like in one world view where there's like, okay, there's a solution, you can try this, you can try this, you can try this, but there's so many problems um, in terms of mental health across cultures that um, even in our, my own culture, people don't really focus on because, um, because honestly, like when you're from like a third world country or something like that, um, you don't really focus on, the mental health comes later, whereas you're really, really focused on trying to survive, right? So um, that, the, the term mental health is fairly new and it's, people are realizing it more and more now. Um, I mean, there are like uh, psychiatrists and, and, and psychologists, but um, the, just the term that's, that, that someone can be mentally unwell uh, is seen as, uh, something more different, like if you're depressed or something, like I said, people might think that you're unmotivated or you're lazy or, or things like that. And sometimes people bring those stigmatizations 
two here when they come here and they don't realize, hey, like there, this is something that's actually important to talk about and we should you know, talk about these things. Good answer. There's one more question, I think. Uh, one last person I wanted to thank before we're done is my good friend DJ Charlie Hustle. He is a uh, local DJ here in town, but he's also a world champ, 2015 Red Bull world champ. And he's, and he's not just a DJ, he's someone who really cares socially about the issues that are affecting our community. So a big thanks for providing the music before and after to him. And he do donated all the music that's, uh, that you can hear on our podcast as well, so, so I'm forever grateful. Okay, thanks a lot for listening and having us. Well, thank you so very much. So a big, one more big round of applause for everybody for the Say No podcast. I can say the, the discussion, the teachings, the lived experience you shared today was incredibly impactful. And so thank you. Thank you for being here today. Thank you so very much for checking out this episode of the podcast. It was an absolute honor to be asked to participate in the University of Saskatchewan's Bell Let's Talk celebration. I learned a lot from the panel that they put together, and I hope you did as well. If you haven't subscribed yet, please take this time, move that thumb, hit the subscribe button. That's what matters in the podcast world. It really helped us out. And if you happen to have a spare $25 kicking around and you want to support our nonprofit initiative and brag about harm reduction in your community and look good doing it, then head over to our website and pick up a kick-ass t-shirt that we recently got printed and you will be supporting our nonprofit initiative. We only have a handful of episodes left. It's going to be sad when this season is complete, but it's been an absolute blast and I have learned so much, and I really thank you for listening along with me and learning with me. If you haven't, if you haven't had the chance to catch up on any other episodes, take the time to do that because every episode is so different and all of these guests have something incredible and unique to say. So we only have a handful of episodes left. We've got some really exciting ones. I sat down with Professor Bruce Alexander, that's right, the rap part guy as well as uh, one of the creators of the LEAD program based out of Seattle, the Law Enforcement uh, Assisted Version Program. Uh, really interesting discussion there. It definitely inspired me uh, at home here to look into what they're doing and see if it's something our community can do. So I, I hope you enjoy what you've heard so far. Make sure you subscribe to our Facebook page, Twitter. A big thanks to Chrism for the funding that allowed this podcast to take place. <laughs>